have a seat, but don't pick up your coffee or anything. Scooch back in the seat. Put your hands in your lap. We're going into a time of prayer. So pay attention. In the Bible, this is the way the Hebrews spelled the name of God. We pronounce it Yahweh. No good Jew would ever say this name and profane the name of God. As a matter of fact, by the 9th century A.D., people just forgot how to say it. They took the vowels out. There's no vowels. We don't even know if it's actually pronounced Yahweh. I was sitting at the Royals game with the family pre-World Series. And I, you know, this is what pastors do at baseball games. And I noticed that the guy was going around, the vendor was going around yelling out, beer. You know, beer here, beer. And I was thinking about it, as nerd pastors do. And I thought, you know, it's a total exhale. Beer. I mean, here, just whisper it under your breath. This is your weird moment. Beer. And the pastor's telling me to say beer in the middle of worship. Beer. You feel it? it, Beer. It just, it's a breathing out. But this name of God, say Yahweh under your breath. It's almost as though you breathe in, Yahweh, and out. Yahweh. Do it. The name of God, the unspeakable name of God, has been on your lips from your very first breath of life. When you took that first gulp of air and you went, yah, until your very last on this planet, when you go, way. Each and every day, each and every moment, right now, you're breathing in and out the name of God, yah. Yahweh. Your life is prayer. Close your eyes and silently say, breathe the name of God. Yahweh. Yah. said, amen. Well, we move into a time of teaching this morning, and probably in this little series about what if there were no dot, 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 probably the most serious one is this one about the Bible. A couple weeks ago, we did what if there were no forgiveness in the world, and then we did last week, what if there were no Jesus, and this week, we do the one that's kind of really not like forgiveness or Jesus. It's what if there were no Bible? I mean, after all, the Bible's a book. It's not a person or a, a theological concept like forgiveness or something like that. And so it gets a little harder to try and figure out, you know, um, how to conceive of this thing. But if there were no Bible, what would we have in the world? Would it make any difference? Because these days people are kind of down on the Bible. Like, yeah, it's an old book. It's kind of heavy on people. It's kind of, you know, I think it says something wrong about people's uh, sexual identity or whatever. And, you know, aren't we over that sort of thing? And aren't we past that sort of deal? And isn't it sort of oppressive and, you know, stodgy? And um, it may be. It may be to some of us. But I think the world would be in a really much more terrible place if we didn't have the Bible. And I think we need the Bible. I think we need the Bible these days. Even though it is an ancient book and it's big and it's thick, And it's hard to understand sometimes. We have to admit that. 
Why did Abraham nearly sacrifice his son Isaac? Anybody got the quick you know, elevator speech answer on that one? That's hard to say. Did the sun and moon actually stand still for Joshua and the army of Israel? Did the sun and moon actually stand still? Did Jesus actually breathe something called the Holy Spirit on his disciples after his resurrection? What's the Holy Spirit? The, the Bible, difficult to see it is. Yes? You know, and, and besides that, it's 90% history and the, and the other half spiritual. So it makes it really difficult to understand. But I propose the world needs the Bible more than ever these days. America could use the Bible more than ever these days, in my opinion. I think America is adrift. I think we're confused. I call it an age of ambiguity. We're ambiguous these days. We don't know why we're here. We don't know what mission we're on. We don't know what our calling is. And, of course, this in our election year, when all of this sort of thing has to have some sort of clarity, it doesn't feel very clear to me, at least. Who are we? The Bible will come in and ground a culture and a people. The Bible will come in and ground us politically, culturally, philosophically, ethically, morally. And I'm not even assuming that people have to believe in the Bible or the miracles or the theology or all the rest of the stuff like that. I'm just talking the practical level of the Bible. The Bible's lessons are time-tested. They work. They've been put to the test. They can work for you too. They can tell you how to parent. They can tell you how to be in love. They can tell you how to manage your money. They can tell you how to manage your anger and your emotions. There's therapy in there. There's psychology in there. There's this practical everyday wisdom in the Bible. But let's begin at the beginning, everyone. The Bible records human history from really about 1600 BCE, before the Common Era, about 1600 BC to around 900. Those are the centuries that the Bible's written, with big gaps in there, of course. 1600 to about 900, or even 1400 or 1200. We're not even quite sure when it started being recorded. The Bible records the thoughts and history really of just one particular people. The Hebrews, the Jewish people, it's really their God, their Bible, their story, their history. It's just one window into the world. But for some reason, the Jewish God, the Jewish history, seems to resonate in the hearts and minds and souls of the rest of humanity. There's something going on beyond just one people's history. There's something common to all of humanity. There's something about the Bible's story that resonates with everyone and most people all around the world. It's the most sold book ever in human history. And still is. It applies to lots of people. White Europeans for the last several centuries see the God of the Bible as a, as a powerful and orderly God in Scripture. African Americans see in the Bible a God that identifies with their struggles and yet is overcoming. Asian people, Asian countries, see God as wise and miraculous in the Bible. All of humanity is intrigued by the miraculous God in the Bible, both believing and unbelieving. Everyone's attracted to these stories in the Bible and are trying to figure out what's being said to them. But allow me to, to just go in the beginning here. Let me just go back to the very first radical difference in the Bible. Okay, because if we didn't have the Bible 
our society would look very, very different. Human history would look very, very different for the last two, 3,000 years. If there were no Bible, our Western world's judicial system would be radically different. How we do our laws and how we do our court systems, just on a practical level, would be radically different. Okay? Without the modern Bible, our court system may have followed some other ancient legal texts, such as the laws of Eshnuna or the Code of Hammurabi. Okay? Now, only a nerd like me sits around and actually has this sort of thing on their bookshelf, and I do. But I don't read it all the time. I'm not that nerdy, but I could be. I spent some time reading the Code of Hammurabi uh, and comparing it to the Bible's Old Testament laws. And what you come up with is in the Code of Hammurabi, it's, it's from Babylon, around the Tigris and Euphrates, probably around the year, oh, what, 2000, somewhere around, I mean, about 1600 or so far around there, around modern-day Iran, Okay. The Code of Hammurabi dictates that if you steal something from the government, you're put to death. Doesn't matter if it's a paperclip or a pencil. They didn't have paperclips back then, nor pencils. But if you did, and they did, you'd be put to death. If you received those stolen goods, that pencil or paperclip, then you are put to death, according to the Code. If you commit a robbery and you, and you are caught you get put to death, any robbery. If you help an escape, a slave escape, then you're put to death. If you harbor an escaped fugitive or slave, guess what? You're put to death. You guys are catching on here to the Code of Hammurabi. There's a lot of, they weren't real creative when it came to the repercussions of any sort of crime. They kind of had a one-trick pony. Just put him to death and call it good. If you help your neighbor put out their burning house that's on fire and you see something sitting there like a paperweight or whatever, you say, I'm just going to put it in my pocket. Guess what? You get put to death. No, no. No, you don't. This is the tricky part. You get cast into the burning house fire and then you get put to death. Now, the code's not all death. If you steal a cow, a pig, a sheep, or a boat, those things go together, um, from the state, from the government, then you have to pay back 30-fold. You steal one pig, you're paying back 30 pigs. If you steal from a private citizen, though, it's only 10 pigs. You steal a pig, you got to pay back 10 pigs. Here, I'll just give it to you. I'm going to show it to you on the screen, okay? If a person stole either an ox or a sheep or an ass or as a pig or a boat, and it belongs to the state, he shall make 30-fold restitution. If it belongs to the private citizen, he shall make good tenfold. If the thief does not have sufficient, plug in the word money, if they don't have sufficient to make restitution, guess what? You're put to death. So, that's kind of lying. There actually is death at the end of, you know, anything you can't make restitution for. Now, it may not be real creative, but it seemed to be pretty easy to understand the Code of Hammurabi. But if we compare the Code of Hammurabi, which was before the Bible, and that the Bible actually knew about and looked at and compared itself to, you see a radically different judicial system develop in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. If you go to Exodus chapter 21, 22, and thereabouts, as a matter of fact, you can just thumb through 
Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus, Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible. And you can pick out these various laws in there. But just for instance, if you go to Exodus chapter 21, you're going to find a much more lenient, less harsh consequence for crimes such as stealing. For instance, if you steal something, it's not 30 times if you steal from the government or 10 times if you stole from a private citizen. You only have to pay back double. You steal a pig, you owe two pigs. Now, if you're kosher, you're not stealing pigs because the Jews didn't have those anyways. But let's just go to the boat. If you steal a boat, then you owe another boat. Two boats. If you knock out the tooth or an eye of a slave, or if you beat your slave, then the slave goes free and the owner is punished. Now, I know you're thinking like, wait a second, what are you doing talking about slavery? You're like, well, let's understand this stuff is about 3,000 years old, right? Or even 4,000 years old sometimes. And you're talking about when slavery was common practice. This is actually just within the context of slavery, because we all know slavery is wrong, and actually Christianity Christianity helped get rid of slavery, actually pretty much single-handedly. You'll still understand that the law of Moses is much more lenient than other ancient judicial systems. It's funny, though, as you even think about slavery and the atrocities that were done to African people when they were stolen and brought over here, that they didn't even read the the law of Moses on how to treat their slaves. That's a sort of a sidebar. Here's another case right out of Exodus 22. In In any case of disputed ownership involving ox, donkey, sheep, clothing, or any other loss, of which one party says, this is mine, the case of both parties shall come before God And the one whom God condemns shall pay double to the other. This is uh, using judges, legal judges, court judges. Now, that's not true over in the Code of Hammurabi. They didn't go to a court. Instead, they threw you in the river Euphrates because the river Euphrates was their God. And if you didn't drown then you weren't guilty. But if you drowned, then you were guilty. They just let the God River Euphrates decide things for them. Okay. Of course, you have to understand, most people in the ancient world did not know how to swim. Just the way it is. The Bible's legal texts are are the basis for our modern-day judicial system. Do you know that? Our founding fathers, like John Adams, if you ever read his biography or if you watch the miniseries several years ago on John Adams, the interplay between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, you will see, if you read the biography of, of Adams, of someone like John Adams, he's one, one of my favorite guys, you will see that Adams poured over the Roman texts of Romulus, Cicero, read this Plato. He knew all of the ancient texts. He knew the Bible. They would sit around the dinner table and just quote the Psalms and quote the Proverbs. They'd quote Shakespeare. And John Quincy Adam and the other horde of kids that uh, they had would all sit there and finish each other's things. So instead of us quoting movie lines of like, you know, Hot Rod and Dumb and Dumber, they would actually sit around and quote Shakespeare to each other. The kids, the little kids knew it. Bright family. John Adams in his constitution for the colony of Massachusetts is the foundation of our constitution for this country, and he took it from the Bible, not the Code of Hammurabi. If there weren't a Bible, we may very well 
be living in still a paperclip, put to death type of a society. But the Bible was generous, and it made its way into our legal system and into the legal systems of all of European countries, and now even into the rest of the world. There are a few other major benefits we enjoy because there's a Bible. The Bible is the first expression of democracy. Once again, it made its way into our Constitution. But it comes at a, at a roundabout way in the Bible on why there would be democracy. It's not truly the way we think about democracy, where there's just a vote type thing. What it did, in the Bible, every person was valuable. Every woman, child, man, everyone was valuable. Why? Because they were made in the image of God. That's why they all counted. Nobody could put somebody else to death because God made them. Every person is God-breathed. And that's why everyone had an equal vote. It's the, it's the beginning, the core of the idea of the equality of humankind that we find right in our Declaration of Independence. That everyone's created equal in the sight of God. Inalienable rights that we all have. All of that comes out of the Bible. You're living in a country that looked at the Bible to find its freedom of, of, of um, religion, democracy, and our judicial system. We have that right there. But it goes beyond this because now it begins to describe, well, what kind of God would this sort of be? A life was precious, a life was precious because God breathed life into each person. But you know what happens, right? The people of Israel, around the time of Samuel, right? Before King David and all this, around 1200, the people want a king like all the other nations around them. Right then they had judges, they had a judicial system, really kind of was almost democratic with representatives and all sort of thing. But no, the people, the Hebrew people wanted a king like all the other cool nations around them, and they wanted a cool-looking king too. Some good-looking dude who was a good military strategist and was rich and powerful, and they found just the guy, and this guy named King Saul. He was the first king of, of Israel. But it's interesting the dynamic that went on between the people and God. So here's what you have. Samuel tells the people, you do not want a king. Kings are bad. Kings are going to tax you. Kings are going to conscript, conscript, you, conscript you to their army and have you go fight foreign wars. You're not going to like it. And they say, we don't care. We want a king anyway. And Samuel says, but you have God as your king. God is your king. And you're like, nah, it's not cool enough. So here's what it says, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people, God says, in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they've rejected me from being king over them. This God allows the people to fire him. <laughs> What kind of God is that? Nowhere else in any other religion or ancient text will you find this kind of a, of a God in the ancient world. The Babylonians don't have a God like the Hebrew God. The Babylonians had that river God Euphrates where you just chuck people in and they either swim or sink. 
Only the Bible's God allows himself to be fired by his own people. Does the whole king thing work out for the Hebrews? Does King Saul end up being awesome? No. King Saul is really cool and good looking, but he has no relationship with God. He doesn't understand God. And when the pressure's on and then they're in heat of battle and there's a stalemate going on, what does King Saul do? He goes and consults the witches of Endor and starts trying to cast spells and gets paralyzed by the fight. And eventually, King Saul ends up going mad. And that's why people don't name their kids Saul much anymore. But they do name their kid David, who is the next king and is called the friend of God. And yet, yet, even David, in all of his wonderfulness, does not control his family well, ends up sinning egregiously with Bathsheba, And his sons, being greedy and power-hungry, bring down the country. And most of the Bible is the story of that great decline of David's legacy. It's good reading, actually. In sort of the worst sort of way. (laughs) Still, through all of this decline and all of this sin and all of this sordid drama in the Bible... God remains faithful to the people. This is what we get out of the Bible, everyone. This unique God that is summed up in a word called covenant. We have a covenant God in the Bible. God is a God of covenant. And and to illustrate this sort of thing, what we understand is that marriage is supposed to be a covenant as well. But it's fallen out of favor because we've gotten away from this biblical idea as as a part of our culture. But marriage is supposed to be a covenant. Instead, what we have going on is a contract marriage. Because the idea of a covenant marriage is simply this. A covenant says, no matter what you do, I am bound to you. If you run away from me, if you play the harlot, if you treat me bad, if you laugh at me, if you mock me, I will always love you, says God. Even if the other party fails to uphold their end of the bargain in a covenant relationship, the other party remains faithful. This is the way God treats us. Now see, I think most of us have drifted into a contract understanding of marriage and other agreements out there, which says if, if the one party, if the first party fails to uphold the contract, then the contract is null and void and is no longer ha- has force. That's the way our society operates now. We don't really understand covenant anymore. Because we've gotten away from the Bible's idea of love. Because we also don't like the idea that in covenant love, somebody might let you down. It's very, very risky. It's very intimate. And love is dangerous. And it is risky, as all of us know. And it might hurt you. This is how God loves us. He's willing for us to fire him out of love. That's quite a God. So the Bible presents us with this covenant God. A covenant love is this extremely risky love. Nowhere else in the ancient text do we find people taking this sort of risk of having this sort of relationship. And so what it creates is this intimate God that you can tell everything to. Not just some distant deity or a statue or a river or something like that or the sun or whatever. It's this personal God. 
And so nowhere else in the ancient text do we find people praying to a God like the Hebrews pray to God in the, in the Bible. The Psalms, the Bible's prayer, uh, prayer book, the Psalms right there in the middle of the Bible, 150 of them. The Psalms are filled with praises and alleluias and glorious wonderful things about the sun is rising. We praise you, God. And yet in the next breath, it can be saying like, why are you letting my enemies tromp all over me? Why are you letting my enemies have their, their, their foot on my neck? Why, how'd you do this to me, God? Glorious praise. And in the same moment, complaining to God and whining and wondering what's wrong. Nowhere else in any other religion do you find this kind of relationship going on with God between people and God. All of the history and drama of the Bible, there's this one thing that we find, and it's this intimate God. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 131. O oh Lord, my heart's not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is within me. Here is this intimate covenant God (laughs) being cast in the image of a mother. This is the God Jesus has in the New Testament. Where else do you find this concept of God in such an intimate way so that Jesus, on the night when he is betrayed after the Last Supper, and they go to the garden to spend the night, and Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot, and he goes further into the garden, and he falls on his knees. Well, here's what he says. And going a little further, going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not what I want, but what you want. Intimacy, everyone. That's the covenant God. What about you? Is your God intimate? What do you think of God? What kind of God do you have? Do you have some mechanical, theoretical idea of a God? Some sort of scientific, uh, you know, philosophical God? Or do you have this God of the Bible? This sort of red meat-eating sort of relationship with God? This, this intimate dramatic relationship with God. How do you think of the Bible? For me, it's my bread. This is the bread I eat. It's food. It sustains me. The Bible teaches me how to parent, how to stay married. The Bible teaches me how to treat my fellow human being, how to view politics. The Bible teaches me about money and work. The Bible teaches me how to pray, how to play, how to enjoy, how to be sad, how to pray. The Bible teaches me how to take care of the earth. The Bible uh, understands my soul, it's psychological, and how people think and behave. It decodes the human experience and even asks more questions than we can even answer and ask on our own. Here's my big walkaway point this morning, everyone. And this is what the Bible does to us. Here's my big walkaway. So if you walked out of here with just one concept, this is what I'd love to give to you. Any God that you can imagine, any God that you can imagine will not change your life. I'll say it again. Any God that you can imagine will not change your life. Only a God outside of your imagination can transform and change you. 
Only a God of the Bible that's beyond our imagination can change your life. You see, if you can imagine God, then you can contain and control God, and God's now in a box. You just created another religion. It's only this God of the Bible that's beyond our imagination that comes into our life, that crashes into our circumstances and makes us into different people. The God we can imagine will never change us. Only the God of the Bible is beyond our imagination. It's not like any other God we've ever heard of. Intimate, risky, covenant, personal, powerful, serving, surprising, beyond. It's funny how people develop opinions about God. Sometimes we put God in a box, and sometimes we have no idea, and that's the real God. I remember years ago, two women who were going through cancer, they kind of knew each other by uh, acquaintance, but really they didn't know each other. I listened to the story of two women with cancer, two very different relationships with God, one with God in a box and the other one without. The one woman with God in her box lost her battle to cancer. She had a victorious God. She imagined God, a God who's not going to let her die from cancer. Her God only ever wins. She was always positive and upbeat. As a matter of fact, a little superficial in my opinion. Her thoughts about God always seemed a little forced to me and a little plastic, a little fakey. She demanded that God heal her. She would say, my God does not allow, doesn't do this to people, doesn't do cancer to people. Cancer and God didn't share the same space in her world, in her box. And she was very churched, very moral, very fundamentalist, very devout by our standards of religion. And she was moral and kind and sweet and a wonderful person. The best kind of person. But her God... Her God couldn't comprehend cancer. She had a limited God. The other woman struggling with cancer, a few years ago, Lori and I are at a retirement party in New York City at Christmas time. It's one of these magical stories in my life. A small group, after the big presentation celebration, goes out to dinner in a small Italian restaurant just over behind the show district in New York City. It's raining out. It's 40 degrees out. People are scurrying around. It's late at night, and we go off to eat Italian food. Great Italian food. Down a hallway to this marvelous room to one of these millionaires, the guys we were with, and then there's Lori and me. One of these millionaires and his favorite restaurant where they knew him by name is his room, his menu, his wine. And I'm telling you, the stories are flowing, the wine is flowing, and everybody's one up on each other on the jokes and the laughter, and everyone's red-faced, a bunch of room full of millionaires. And then, you know, the pastor is sitting over in the corner where they usually put pastors in these sort of situations. That's me. And I'm sitting next to this woman who's been going through cancer for a couple of years, and she was even further in the corner, just smiling just sitting there taking it all in, watching these guys have the time of their life. And so I leaned over to her and I said, so how's the past year been for you? Which is pastor code for how's the cancer? 
And she leaned in a little to me and she whispered, I feel like I'm the only person who's alive. Now, on any movie set, the rest of the room was alive, but not for her. To her, she thought all the rest of us were dead. And she was the only person alive. And she's the one with cancer. Now, I really didn't know much about her faith, but I really didn't think she had much of a strong faith. I don't know if she went to church hardly at all. She actually was probably a fairly, what we might call, nominal Christian. And yet, somehow, she's living this cancer out with her and God, a God beyond her imagination, outside of the box. Did she blame God? I didn't ask her. It didn't matter. God was with her. God was close to her. God, God was keeping her alive. And all she could do is sit back and watch. No answers, just experiencing. She hadn't abandoned God, and she didn't think God had abandoned her. She was alive, and that's all that mattered. I think she understood God better than me. I think she had a better God of the Bible, even though she didn't know the Bible very well. And she's still with us today. What's your picture of God? What do you think of the Bible? Do you need the Bible? Does the Bible help you? Is the Bible your bread? Does the Bible present to you a God that's beyond your imagination that'll change your life? Or or did you think this was supposed to be like some sort of instruction manual on how to put together your barbecue grill or some sort of magic decoder ring or like some sort of, you know, uh, thing that's going to solve all your problems or whatever? Instead, this is a storybook. It's not a science book. It's a story. It's a story of humanity. It's a story of your life right here. And that's what we get out of it. Nothing else. And we do well to base our life on this book right here. And it'll change your soul. But because sometimes we need a little bit of practical help, let me just leave you with some uh, ideas of where to start reading this big old thing because it's not chronological and it, you know, it doesn't say once upon a time and then they lived happily ever after. It doesn't go like that. So let me, you might want to grab your pencil or whatever. You want to jot down some of this or what I'm going to say. You don't have to, but, or just take a picture of the screen. Hmm? If you're in leadership, if you're in leadership, then read First and Second Kings. If you run your own company or if you're in charge of some in your in a big organization or whatever, read First and Second Kings, read Judges, read Nehemiah, read Numbers. These are leadership books, mostly examples of the bad kind, okay? And they're highly entertaining. And, uh, but luckily, the Bible knows that there are leadership examples of the bad kind, and it'll decode it for you a little bit. If you want to analyze culture, particularly like right now in an election year, then read the Prophets. Read Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the rest. Well, Ezekiel is pretty thick, but read Daniel. Read all of that. Read all the political ones. The prophets are always dealing with politics and kings and governments and all this sort of thing. All right? If you're in business, then read the Proverbs. If you're in business, read the Proverbs. It'll teach you how to deal with mankind all day long, how to be honest, how to be moral, what's the right thing to do, how do things work out. So if you're in business, read the Proverbs. If you want to shake your world up, if you need your world rocked, if you need to figure out your identity, if you need to open up the doors and the windows of your soul, then read the Gospels about Jesus. 
Get challenged about what your life's all about. Okay? If you want to understand God's world and sort of this big, huge story of everything, then read Genesis and the other first five books of the Bible, you know, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's, it's that sort of, it's the Jewish people's story, but you'll see all the rest of our story in it. And then you can read the rest of the New Testament, the letters of Paul and the first church, if you want to find out about calling and where we're at these days and what the mission of the church is and what you ought to be doing in it. And, and, and if you have cancer then do what most people do in the Bible who are in, in, in these unimaginable circumstances. Just sit in silence. Be still and know that I am God and sit with the Psalms like a weaned child with its mother. And have God in the Scripture ask you what God always asks people who are in unimaginable circumstances. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? That's what God always asks. This is the God of the Bible, everyone. This is the book we base our life off of. Imagine if we didn't have this picture of God that only the Bible gives us. Where would we be if we didn't have this for our judicial system, for our government system, for how we understand the world? Valuable book. Let us pray. Now, God... I pray uh, that people in the room would be inspired to read the Bible, that they would pursue you through the scriptures, that they would chase after you and be surprised by you on those pages of the Bible. May it come alive for them and may it be their bread. In the name of Christ. Okay, let's stand, and let's end with, hey, guess what? The Bible, huh? Right out of Paul's letter, Ephesians chapter 2, very encouraging. Christians all the time say this verse to, to get themselves out of a worship service, and here's what we're going to do it to. So say this with me, all right? Let's, let's declare this together, everyone out loud. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.